Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. In an era when a woman showing her ankle was seen as transgressive, a group of radical women broke societal norms to use their bodies as canvases for their art and repopularize an age-old tradition. The end. Let's talk about tattooed ladies, but first, let's drop them into history. In 1882, circus impresario P.T. Barnum brought his elephant Jumbo, soon to be the most famous elephant in the world, whose ashes, some of them, are strangely stored in a peanut butter jar in the office of the athletic director at Tufts University. (laughs) There was an assassination attempt against Queen Victoria while she was boarding a train at Windsor, the last of the eight attempts on her life during her reign. Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture for full orchestra and cannons debuted in Moscow. Thomas Edison created the very first string of electric Christmas tree lights. And 10,000 workers marched in the very first Labor Day parade in New York City to campaign for such things as a 40-hour work week, collective bargaining, and an end to child labor. Born this year, U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, painter Edward Hopper, Virginia Woolf, Bella Lugosi, and composer Igor Stravinsky, died this year, outlaw Jesse James, First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln, Charles Darwin, and Ralph Waldo Emerson. And a few weeks apart, in 1882, the two first professional tattooed ladies in America made their debut in New York City. Hello, and welcome to the show. It's just me today, Beckett. Susan is away for this episode. During the Victorian and Gilded Ages, a number of tattooed ladies became famous throughout America and Europe. After I got my own first tattoo recently, and after a little nudge by the Bowery Boys' own Greg Young, today I'm going to bring you some of their stories. But first, a little background. It's important to note that the history of tattooing, which is the practice of marking the skin with indelible patterns by making punctures in it and inserting pigments, goes back throughout recorded history and even into prehistory through figurines and other art decorated with patterns or even preserved human skin. The oldest example of this is Otzi the Iceman, who was born approximately 3300 BC and was found in 1991 with significantly tattooed skin. Most cultures all over the world practiced some form of body illustration or modification, though it had different meanings, marking someone as a slave or as a member of the tribe or of high status or as the shameful mark of a criminal, as an homage to their own deities, to express their personalities, or the early Christian practice of getting religious tattoos as a sign of their devotion to God. But by the 300s, that particular practice was getting a little bit tied up with barbarian outliers in the Christian world. And I quote Saint Basil the Great, No man should let his hair grow long or tattoo himself, as do the heathen. Do not associate with those who mark themselves with thorns and needles so their blood flows to the earth. Hmm. This debate went on for hundreds of years. By the 787 Council of Northumberland, they seem to come down on when an individual undergoes the ordeal of tattooing for the sake of God, he is greatly praised. But one who submits himself to be tattooed for superstitious reason in the manner of the heathens will derive no benefit. The Crusaders, when they went to the Holy Land, often sewed cloth crosses upon themselves, and many of them were known to have branded themselves on the forehead or on the arm with the sign of the cross. Now, the word tattoo, of course, was not of the era, and I have been watching videos of medieval scholars disagreeing with themselves as to whether any of this involved ink or puncture bones or... What was it? Can we officially call it a tattoo? And honestly, who am I to have an opinion if the scholars who spend all of their time immersed in this world cannot even agree with each other? 
Suffice to say that even though this practice continued in the Holy Land in Jerusalem, documentation of Western Europeans receiving tattoos disappeared for approximately 800 years. Now, I'm acknowledging that tattoo practices continued apace all over the world with no interruption, and this is not necessarily that story. I wanted to concentrate on Western European and American experiences with regard to tattoos. So I'll provide you with a link to some other stories, but I will continue here in the direction that I have set out to go. Let's rejoin the story in the early 1600s. Now, travel by sea was becoming exponentially less risky. The past two centuries had seen major European countries traveling the globe, mapping what they found. It's called the Age of Exploration, but it might better be called the Age of Exposure, I think, to each other. Um, They brought back such souvenirs as syphilis, the potato, the tomato, marketable valuables like spices, human cargo and the cultural practice of tattoo. The sailors encountered tattooed civilizations in China, on the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, the island of Japan. Sailors had been sampling the world of tattoo since sailors had become sailors. But it was not until the famous, or you might say notorious, Captain James Cook and his South Pacific expeditions that the word tattoo came into the English language either from the Polynesian tattoo, T-A-T-U, or the Samoan word tatau, T-A-T-A-U, both meaning to tap or to mark something. In Polynesia, tattoos carried great significance for the wearer, with social rank, family ties, religious importance, achievements, personality depicted in this artwork. Both men and women receive tattoos, and this is not their story, but I will give you a link later to the PBS feature on the history of tattoos in Polynesia. Western sailors began receiving tattoos as souvenirs of their own travels and of their bravery. These tattoos, the ones the Western sailors were receiving, were known as stick and poke tattoos. Just what it sounds like, the practitioner who had to be exceptionally skilled to get the ink at the right depth applied ink to a needle or other sharp object and placed the ink carefully under the skin in a series of tapping motions. Tattoos became deeply associated with the military, especially the Navy. Honestly, I have to tell you, that persisted. All the way up until my college years, I, I will say that if you if you see an old guy with a tattoo up until maybe the 1980s, you just assume he was in the military. By the 1820s, heavily tattooed men began to appear in theaters, shocking the audiences with their bare chests, ooh, colorful arts, and tales of forcible kidnapping and torture were quite common, where, quote, savages marked them for life. It sure sold tickets, that story, more than the story that is probably more true. Oh, this guy set up shop near the waterfront. Port cities became the natural operating theater of the American tattoo artist, and tattoos became associated with the culture of the waterfront, the disreputable, the drunk, the criminal elements, and also bravery and machismo. And it is here in the timeline that I want to tell you a whole other kind of tattoo story. All of Ann Oatman was born in 1837 in La Harp, Illinois, one of the seven children of Royce Oatman and Mary Ann Sperry Oatman. In the spring of 1850, the family gathered near where I am sitting in Independence, Missouri, with a wagon train of other families intent on following their prophet, James Brewster, to the west, to a land called Bashan that he had seen in a vision, a land of milk and honey reserved for them at the mouth of the Colorado River. The entire party set out, but disagreements caused several splits in their entourage. Mr. Oatman then became the leader of a group of eight wagons who turned south and headed for a route that followed the Rio Grande. 
It was a perilous journey. They suffered from heat, from lack of water. Their oxen that were pulling their wagons collapsed. Their other livestock had been stolen in the night. By who? There was a great threat from Native Americans who honestly were defending themselves against incursions just like this. The other families came to a decision. You know what? We've had it. Let's go back to civilization and regroup. We're not ready. We're not going to make it. Mr. Oatman, though, would have none of it. He wanted to press on. They'd been traveling for over a year and he wanted to be done. He wanted to settle. And he was confident that with friendly treatment, if they did encounter any Native Americans, he would be able to pass through. So everyone left them. And alone, the Oatmans set out across the wilderness of Arizona. In the middle of February 19th, 1851, the family were surrounded by a party of 17 Yavapai warriors who demanded food and tobacco. The tobacco, no problem, but the Oatmans were already rationing their food. And Papa said, if I give you any of this food, my children will starve. And as Olive later recounted, after a bit of discussion, there was, and I quote, a fiendish yell and the campsite became a massacre. Olive and her younger sister, Marianne, were pushed to the side, and they watched as their entire family was killed in front of them. And I am not going to go into any more detail than that here because of little ears and whatnot, but the Yavapai then made the girls remove their shoes, so no shoe prints walking away from the scene, and quick marched them for three days, traumatized and bleeding, beating them for their slowness, punching them every time they asked for water. Olive was terrified that at any point they would kill her sister Marianne, who was only seven and had had a hard time keeping up. When they got to the Yavapai village, they were the centerpieces of a victory jubilee, and the terror that Olive and Marianne must have felt is almost indescribable. They spent the next year as slaves, mistreated, hardly fed, suffering. The young people of the Yavapai tribe thought it was a fun thing to heat up sticks in the fire and burn them as they went about their daily tasks, and they were not stopped from doing so. The girls were despairing. There was no way out. No one had known where they were. There was no hope of escape. Little did they know that their brother, Lorenzo, 15, had actually survived the attack. The Yavapai had hit him in the head and thrown him into a 20-foot ravine and left him for dead. But he had survived. He woke up and made his way back over 50 miles to the remnants of the wagon train they had left, um, healed, came back with a bunch of people to bury his family, and upon counting, discovered that his two sisters, rather than being among the dead, were in fact missing. So in the background, Lorenzo is searching for them and um, publicizing their disappearance and their plight and working for their rescue. Every year, the Yavapai met up with some of their neighbors for a kind of trading in news summit. And during one of those events, a tribe of Mojaves noticed the girls and their condition and offered to trade for them. And the Mojave finally gave the Yavapai an offer too large to refuse, horses, food, blankets, beads, etc. And the Mojave took their new purchases, Olive and Marianne, away with them as they set out for home. At first, the girls despaired again. At this great pace, they didn't think they could make it. They were weaker than before. But unlike last time, the Mojave noticed and slowed way, way down, way down. A trip that normally took three or four days actually took them 11. Well, there's an indication that we might be dealing with a different kind of people here. And when they got to the Mojave village, they were taken in by one of the leaders, whose name was Espanese, and his wife, Aspano. They had a daughter of about the same age as Olive named Topeka. And I read that it was Aspano and Topeka who asked Espanese to save them in the first place. In fact, she later said that they saved her life. Olive would also later say that she and Marianne were treated like daughters by this family. They were no longer slaves. They were given plots of land and seeds and taught to farm. Mojave land had a river that ran through it and was much more fertile than the land of the Yavapai. They were given a tribal last name, 
which was Oak, and Olive said they were free to leave at any time. But honestly, if you think about it, where were they supposed to go? She didn't know where she was in the first place. And then when she got there, she had no one. As far as she knew, her entire family had been killed. An interesting fact that has been much canvassed is while the girls were with the Mojave, Approximately 200 railroad surveyors spent a week with the Mojave, and Olive and Marianne did not reveal themselves at all. And that seems to be viewed as a voluntary act, and uh, not that they were purposely kept from the white surveyors. But here is the tie-in to our episode. At some point during their lives with the Mojave, Olive and Marianne were given the traditional set of blue tattoos— vertical lines on their chins, like other Mojave women had, and on their upper arms, not as a punishment, not as a mark of slavery, but to make sure they'd be recognized as tribal members in the afterlife. Olive and Marianne suffered the same fate as their adopted family. A drought and subsequent famine killed many Mojave, Marianne among them. Olive was now alone in the world, and she really cleaved to her new Mojave family. Things changed when Olive was 18. A member of a nearby tribe, a man named Francisco, showed up at the village with a very unwelcome message from no less than the federal government of the United States, which stated, We understand there is a young white woman living with the Mojaves, and you must return her right now. Or at the very least, you must send a representative here explaining why she does not wish to return. And the Mojaves were like, oh no, oh no. And they didn't want to respond. They didn't want Olive to leave. They viewed her as a daughter. There's so much muddying of the waters after this happened that it is not actually clear. Did Olive wish to leave or did she not wish to leave? Was she traumatized? Was she making good decisions and wanting to stay? Was she afraid to reveal that she wanted to leave? It's all up in the air. They hid her. They tried to deny that she was white at all. And ultimately, the federal government said, you should return her right now. And if you don't, we're going to come and destroy you. The end. That's unacceptable behavior. And then we'll catch all your neighbors, too. So Francisco was panic stricken also. Ultimately, the Mojaves had to transfer her back to the U.S. government in exchange for nearly the same quote, price they had paid the Yavapais in the first place. Horses, blankets, beads, and food. Olive was grieving and um, did travel with her adopted sister, Topeka, to Fort Yuma for the transfer. After 20 days, the party arrived at the fort. And when the commander came out to receive her, Olive began to cry. And before she was allowed to come in, one of the women from inside the fort ran out and covered her with a Western dress because when she and Topeka showed up, they were dressed as Mojaves in long skirts with bare chests with her hair dyed and her face painted. And when they asked her what her name was, she said her name was Olivino. She said goodbye to Topeka and was absorbed back into white society. She was made to wash her face and indeed her hair, which had been dyed black to match that of her adopted family. And people were quite shocked to see this white woman with such startling tattoos on her face. Much was made of, quote, the ruination of her beauty. There was horror at the desecration of a Christian woman in this permanent way. However, she was welcomed back as a rescued captive with great cheers and acclaim and soon reunited with her brother, Lorenzo, who she did not know had survived. I imagine that was a glorious meeting. Poor Olive, um... The tattoos, which had welcomed her into her new family, completely set her apart from Western society. There was no way to sink back into obscurity and live a quiet life with her brother, Lorenzo. Newspapers could not get enough of Olive Oatman. They always remarked on her beauty and how she had been 
marred and scarred by her time as a captive with the Mojaves. A newspaper article revealed that, quote, both sisters had been found married to Mojave men. And in fact, one of Olive Oatman's childhood friends, who she reconnected with, had said that she was grieving a Mojave husband and two children that she had left behind. Now think about this. Olive was under great pressure to deny that had ever happened. This was a time and a place when even male friendships between a white man and a man of a Native American tribe were extremely suspicious and very looked down upon and... A lady's reputation and chastity was more important than currency. And so poor Olive Oatman was really in a pickle. When she was reunited with her brother, she was said to have paced and wept and wished to go back to the Mojave where she felt comfortable and valued instead of being what was, in effect, a circus act looked at under a microscope by anyone and everyone, and it didn't help that a preacher by the name of Reverend Stratton wrote a tell-all book about her experience called Life Among the Indians, rife with racism, rife with anti-Indian sentiment, and full of falsehoods. And Olive, simply to exist, went on a speaking tour and gave publicity to this book as a way to make a living. What is the truth? What is fiction? Everybody was under pressure to either sensationalize or hide parts of her story. And unfortunately, unless we were able to go back in time and talk to Olive herself before the newspapers got a hold of her, before the pressures of trying to navigate a world in which she no longer fit, we will never know. We will never know. But 10 years after her return to Western society, Olive married a man named John B. Fairchild, who was a wealthy man who had been a rancher and was now a banker and lived in Rochester, New York. She immediately abandoned the uh, the lecture circuit. That's how she met him in the first place. Uh, she no longer had to do that to survive. He had um, also had some relatives that were killed by... Native Americans. And so they did have that in common. And he tried to protect her from what the media had been doing to her. He made a special effort to go out and collect as much of Stratton's written material that he could and destroyed it all. Any copy of that book he could get a hold of, he he burned. They moved to Texas and adopted a little baby girl that they named after both of their mothers. But Olive was never really herself again. You know, she never seemed to be at peace. She was depressed. She had chronic headaches. Um, she would try to cover her tattoo with makeup or with veils as she went about charitable endeavors, trying to integrate back into the society that she had been placed in as a grown woman, but never really managed. Olive died in 1903, age 65, and people found letters after she died. And her letters just show how damaged she was by both her original family having been murdered in front of her and also then being wrenched out of a life that she had become accustomed to and treated as a specimen. It is not a good story. At, at no point was she allowed to heal, really, or to rest. And I... um I'm sad about Olive Omen. Her story, though, was so famous and entered into the societal lexicon as a thrilling tale of captivity, torture, and rescue. And all of that will be indelibly integrated into the story of tattoo culture in America. As poor Olive Oatman retreated the best she could into her reconstructed life, 
an influential figure emerged over in Vienna, a man with a shocking story of his own and a shocking physical appearance to go with it. This man was closely tattooed in color all over his body, and I do mean all over. <clears throat> As it turned out, though, most people didn't get the full, full effect, if you know what I mean. 388 designs in indigo and cinnabar requiring over 7 million punctures. He began to show himself throughout Europe as Captain Constantinus, the Greek Albanian, and the story he told, and incidentally sold in pamphlet form on your way out, was that he was traveling in the area of modern day Myanmar, innocently participating in a gold mining operation, when his party was caught by Burmese soldiers and given the choice to face various perils as sort of a trial by fire. If you survive, whatever it is, you can go. Wasps, snakes, whatnot. Constantinus and two of his companions chose the tattoo option and over the course of three months, so the story goes, endured all the procedures for that time. And he claimed that his two companions in this punishment died of their injuries and that he barely survived, spending months making his way back through China and up to Europe. And his tattoos were so extensive and were so well executed artistically and um, technically that he was examined closely by the European scientific community as a genuine curiosity. And they seem to have agreed that the techniques and the designs were, in fact, yes, Burmese, including the Burmese lettering that pronounced him to be an insufferable, incurable rogue, which proved to be attractive to the lady persons later. In fact, he seems to have been already a pirate, maybe, a sailor, definitely, and probably a mercenary. But the professional consensus seems to be now that these weren't tattoos given for punishment. Um, Burma really didn't do that. Also, they were too well done to have um, been executed by people as a form of punishment to an unwilling subject. Four men held me down, he said, and they said, mm. The consensus seems to be that all those tattoos in all their quantity and high quality brilliance were likely commissioned by him for the express purpose of becoming, for lack of a better word, famous. And he was a great success, first in France and then arrived in the United States to attend the same event as another famous French import. He and the Statue of Liberty both debuted in America at the Philadelphia World's Fair of 1876 for the Centennial Exhibition. In her case, it was only her hand and a torch. But for Constantinus, he wore as little as he could. It was a whole body experience. He wore, quote, a loincloth, said one paper, and he gobsmacked the populace with his exotic appearance. No slouch for the exotic, P.T. Barnum hired Constantinus for $1,000 a week to tour with the greatest show on earth. That's in $1,876. You know that movie with... Oh, what's his name? Why can I never remember Wolverine's name? That brain cell just seems to be dead. Hugh Jackman, his greatest showman movie, there seems to be a muscly, triangular, super tattooed man in the troupe, probably based on this famous Constantinus, if you want to see what he looks like. He was by no means the first tattooed man to be exhibited. And not even the first one exhibited by Barnum, in fact. But man, did he have style. He had presence. He had magnetismo. Offstage, he dressed like the dapperest of Dan's, dripping in gold and furs, and traveled with an entourage of bodyguards, believe it or not. His performances across America drew crowds and inspired a host of not only imitators, but a whole generation of artists. As a matter of fact, both of the pioneers in the professional tattooed lady industry said that it was a performance by Captain Constantinus that inspired them to get their own illustrations and started them out on their own careers. The first professional tattoo parlor in America was opened in New York City around 1870 by one Martin Hildebrandt, though he preferred the term 
atelier. Perhaps he practiced his art with his pinky up. But he is considered the OG among famous tattoo artists in the Western world. And it is through him that we are going to be introduced to the first professional tattooed lady in America who went by the stage name of Nora Hildebrandt. Nora Hildebrandt began to be shown at a dime museum in the Bowery in New York City in 1882. A dime museum is sort of a cross between a vaudeville show and a circus, sort of a pale imitation of P.T. Barnum's big event, um, local, neighborhood. She was covered in 365 designs, said the posters, one for every day of the year, because as the marketing material goes, she and her father were kidnapped by Sitting Bull and his band of warriors who tied her to a tree and told the poor father, who had learned his art as a sailor, that he and his daughter could only be freed if the poor man covered his child from her toes to her head in tattoo designs for one year. Now, listeners, you and I have already met Sitting Bull on this very show at almost this year during our Annie Oakley episode. He was in the news because he had just returned from exile. He had fled after the Battle of Little Bighorn, Custer's last stand. He'd been fighting his whole life against U.S. aggression against his Lakota people. So while he was certainly capable of great violence... During the years in question, during the years Nora Hildebrandt blamed him for her tattoos, he was literally under arrest by the government under the eye of his enemy in Dakota Territory and really in no position to demand such things as titillating body modification in his spare time. It was marketing. It was branding. Sitting Bull is in all the papers. So it was Sitting Bull. Yeah, that's the ticket. And her stage name couldn't have been more famous, though she was alternately shown as Martin Hildebrandt's daughter. And so, therefore, he must have been the father who was kidnapped, too, except he wasn't, though. He was right there on Oak Street the whole time giving people tattoos that weren't her. Or else she was Martin Hildebrandt's wife. She was marketed as, and poor old papa had been burnt at the stake for breaking his tattoo needles and refusing to go on. Except for Martin Hildebrandt seems to have had a wife named Mary already and just a son named Frank. Now, she could have been a later common law wife. This could have been just a business arrangement or honestly, she could have just heisted his name out of the thin blue sky. And, and be a perfect stranger. You know, your story isn't checking out, ma'am, no matter what. And so rarely do they. In fact, we know very little about Nora's real background at all, except for that she spoke with a British accent and was about 30 when she began to exhibit. A rival tattooed lady emerged only weeks later, named Irene Woodward. Born Ida Lavina Lisk in Philadelphia in the 1850s, she was the daughter of a poor shoemaker. Irene had been covered from neck to ankles in interlocking tattoos by a protege of Martin Hildebrandt's named Sam O'Reilly. Her story that she used to sell in a pamphlet from a table at the back called, and I quote, the facts relating to Miss Irene Woodward, the only tattooed lady. Hmm, what? I'm pointing down the street to Nora right now. My father, the sailor, she said, tattooed me as a child at our home on the frontier to pass the time. She's from Philadelphia. Anyway, in spite of the pain, I was delighted by the images and convinced my father to continue. There, ladies and gentlemen, are some elements to these stories, if you know what I'm saying. Fathers, pain, things happening against their will, savages. Mm. And when our cabin was attacked by an Indian band, they were so impressed by how I looked that they let me go. Nora Hildebrandt might have been first right out of the gate, but Irene Woodward, La Belle Irene, was the first one to have been written up in the New York Times. And this from March 19th, 1882. 
Miss Irene Woodward is a brown-haired, brown-eyed maiden of about 19 years of age of pleasing appearance. They described her, quote, scant costume and pointed out her bashfulness of wearing such a costume before men, as she'd never done that before, and described her tattooing as artistic, varied, and attractive, particularly this floral necklace she had, and I quote, whose graceful blooms were soon lost beneath the lace edging of her bodice. Now, the paper did say lower limbs instead of legs. They couldn't bring themselves to say legs. Um, But this is only 30 years or so after old Amelia Bloomer almost derailed the women's suffrage movement completely with a pair of baggy trousers. So we have come a long way. Or maybe it's just the leeway given to theater people. I don't know. With the press and the public, while finding both of these women fascinating, tended to favor Irene Woodward for the same reason that Hollywood always favors people. Her youth and, and beauty provided the same titillating contrast that had horrified them in the case of Olive Oatman, but now seemed to generate quite the career path um, for Irene. Irene married her agent, and he changed his last name to Woodward, by the way, knowing upon which side his bread was buttered. And that might have contributed to her career being greater also, as she was married to a professional promoter. They um, got gigs all over Europe, including royal courts and um, before heads of state. And like George Constantinus... She was examined by medical professionals in Europe um, who were just intrigued about such extreme body modification. At the end of her career, as she was traveling back to the United States for her retirement to Philadelphia, she boasted that there were 38 wax figures of her in museums and theaters throughout Europe. And perhaps that is why she remained more famous as she left duplicates of herself behind. Irene Woodward died in Philadelphia at the young age of only 53 from cancer, and people at the time blamed the tattoo ink for poisoning her. Well, still, the world is a very big place, and Miss Nora Hildebrandt found great success. Here, from Mexico, is a press release. Miss Nora Hildebrandt, G.B. Bunnell's Tattooed Lady, has achieved a most remarkable success, having been presented by special invitation to all the nobility and people of prominence, among whom were President Manuel Gonzalez and his family, and she has been the recipient of the largest and most costly presents ever known. A handsome Mustang, saddle and bridle from President Gonzalez, a handsome silver-mounted cage containing a lion and an American eagle, a pet tiger, gentle as a kitten that follows her about like a dog. Also, a performing monkey, a pair of talking Spanish parrots, a quartet of mockingbirds, and two Spanish embroidered silk shades. <laughs> Which seems like the least troublesome of all the presents Mexico presented her with. But, and I quote, critics concede the following fact. Miss Nora Hildebrand is nature's model and a living picture admired by all who behold her. Nora Hildebrandt and her probable common-law husband, Martin Hildebrandt, went through some tough personal times and ended up separating. You go your way, I'll go my way. There was no formality, as they'd never been officially married. Unfortunately, his way was um, directly to a mental institution where he was committed and ended up spending the rest of his life there. After which, she married a tattooed man who was a saloon keeper and barber um, with her new husband. She toured for a while as Mr. and Mrs. Hildebrandt. Ouch. But her second career was cut short, very, very short, because Nora Hildebrandt died very early at only 36, believe it or not, of the flu. The astonishing bravery and shocking personal appearance of these two most successful of ladies spawned a sort of concentrated wave of tattooed ladies. Sam O'Reilly, creator of La Belle Irene himself, uh, said that he had produced as many as 12 fully tattooed ladies in the years right after he had inked Irene and set them into the world as advertisements for his good name. 
a sort of mania for tattoos developed among the upper crust of British society, starting about in the 1880s. The Prince of Wales, our old friend Bertie, definitely had at least one. Queen Elizabeth II's grandpapa, Bertie's son, had gotten two tattoos as a young man, a tiger on one arm and a dragon on the other. Winston Churchill's mother, American heiress Jenny Jerome, Lady Randolph Churchill, was rumored to have a snake on her wrist. We talked about this during our Jenny Jerome podcast episode. We haven't seen it. There's no photo of it, but it was almost like a known fact that she had a snake tattoo on her wrist. There's also a rumor that Queen Victoria herself had a tattoo of a tiger fighting a python, and I quote, on her private parts. So only Albert would know, and we needn't speculate. Two things that actually did happen that we can verify. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, when they set up in London, also set up a series of tattoo artists outside the show and were doing a brisk business in Native American motifs as souvenirs. And after Queen Victoria's death in January of 1901, there was worldwide demand for memorial tattoos of the Queen. That same year, our old friend Sam O'Reilly patented the electric tattoo gun, changing the world of tattooing forever. And the number of prominent Europeans getting tattoos grew exponentially. What wonder that tattooing is, now the popular pastime of the leisured world. The news article I just quoted lists royalty in Russia, Denmark, Greece, Sweden, and also the Duke of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, and many others, quote, have submitted themselves to the tickling but painless and pleasant sensation afforded by the improved tattooing needle, which is nowadays worked on a simple plan aided by the galvanic current. He goes on to say, Ladies have taken a strong liking to this form of decoration. It's about as expensive as a dress, but not so costly as good jewelry. In 1897, the New York World newspaper guessed that 75% of American society women had tattoos. That's actually kind of shocking to me. Plus, my words, the fashions of the day made it easy to conceal their secret. Maybe that was Victoria's secret. I'm actually just now struck with the need to go down a rabbit hole, but I don't want to be disappointed. I am going to persist in thinking that it is a tiger and a snake fighting. That is really Victoria's <laughs> secret. Let's keep that in the realm of possibility. As far as the history of the invention of the tattoo gun, I'm going to link you in the show notes to the most recent Bowery Boys episode where they cover that very, very thing. And now on to another pioneer. Maud Van Buren Stevens was born on February 12, 1877, one of the two daughters of David Van Buren Stevens and Sarah Jane McGee Stevens in the country outside of Emporia, Kansas. Emporia is still really the biggest town within striking distance of a whole lot of little towns. In fact, that's where we change in our household to two different highways to go to two different grandparents' houses. As a result, during Maud's day, it was a common stopping point for all manner of traveling circuses. And in the pre-TV, pre-movie age, it was the closest thing you could get to an out-of-body experience. It emerged out of boxes into a magical world of spangles and fire and bravery and the smell of grease paint. In McClure's magazine, the experience of the small town people viewing a circus was written like this. No more splitting kindling and carrying in coal. No more hurry up now, you'll be late for school. No more poking along in a humdrum existence, never going anyplace or seeing anything. But instead, the good, free, 
untrammeled life, the life of a circus. Travel around and be in a new town every day and see things. And when the show came to your own hometown next year, they'd screw up their eyes to look hard and they'd say, yes, sir, it is. It is him of all things. And they'd clap their hands together and be so very proud of you. And they'd wonder how it was they could have been so blind to your many merits when they had you with them. And I say, how are you going to keep them down on the farm? Well, the fact is, you were not. It was a romantic vision and an irresistible one for Maud. I'm sorry to say that we don't know where she went to school or really anything about her childhood. But in her late teens or early 20s, Maud succumbed to the siren song and literally ran away with the circus. She began as a contortionist and worked in a number of traveling shows while training to become an aerialist, which was sort of an all-encompassing name for all the high flyers, trapeze artists, ring work, tightrope walking, the most impossibly romantic role in the whole entire circus. Let me quote another article, this time from The Nation. On their trapezes and their tight ropes high above a solid earth, they act out a dream of perfectibility, defying space and gravity, and human weakness. They weave a fantasy of infallibility. And the spectators? There are no spectators. Every last one of us, svelte and lithe and sheathed in silk, is swinging in space, walking on air, leaping to the backs of plunging white horses. I have to say, scantily clad ladies in peril seemingly in peril, though in full control, were an inspirational cocktail for artists and writers who found the concept irresistible. Such notables as Surratt, Degas, To Lose the Trek, Picasso, Matisse, Chagall, and Laura Knight found muses in the aerialists. And now a quick pivot into the life of one Gus Wagner, He was born in 1872 in Marietta, Ohio, and he saw our old friend Captain Constantinus at a traveling show when he was only 12 and fell in absolute love with the whole concept of tattoos. He went to sea as a young man and traveled all over the world, collecting tattoos as souvenirs wherever he went. Over the course of his life, he would have over 800 tattoos. And after his return to the United States, he billed himself as the most artistically marked man in America. Or the Globetrotter. Honestly, you should see his journals. I'll provide you a link to a museum exhibit. Um, He is an amazing artist. And he began tattooing professionally all over the Midwest. And that is how their worlds collided in the summer of 1904 at the St. Louis World's Fair. This is not our original fair that we keep returning to over and over. No, not the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, but the Meet Me in St. Louis Louis Fair, specifically the one-mile strip on the north called The Pike, full of exotic restaurants from all over the world, penny amusements, acrobats, magicians, and Gus Wagner himself, who had been tattooing visitors at such a pace that he'd count over 2,000 tattoos given by the end of the fair. Maude was performing there, and as the story goes, she agreed to go on a date with him if he gave her a tattoo. That is a big plunge, if true. He began tattooing her, then taught her to give tattoos with the stick and poke method. She, therefore, became the first known professional female tattoo artist. There is some evidence that contradicts this fairy tale that the two had met in Chicago the previous year at the Clark Street Museum and Theater, and that they had opened this shop at the World's Fair together. And that means together they perform 2,000 tattoos. But as usual, the flash outshines what might be the more boring story. But either way, they were married in October 1904. Gus was in the habit of getting photos taken of his process. So there are some photos where you can see Maude mostly not tattooed and then increasingly covered as the years go by. She has this cloud of dark hair and big dark eyes and looks so classic Gibson girl. And then pow, Gus's artwork is such a contrast. It didn't go past her wrist or up onto her face. But my favorite picture of her ever is from 1907. And she is looking direct 
at the camera, so beautiful and just defiant, wearing her pearls, wearing a flower in her hair, and absolutely covered in pictures. She is a woman outside of her time. One of the very first tattoos you see her get is a large eagle on one arm, an American flag tattoo with her name, Maud V. Stevens, which was an homage to her father, who served in the military during the Civil War. Now, there's no real word on exactly what her parents thought of either her circus career itself or this later artistic wrinkle. However, the family had moved to Clements, Kansas while Maude was in her early 20s, and there was always a bedroom waiting for her at the new house, and then later her husband. And that seems to serve as a home base for the Wagners in between shows and traveling. And at first, the neighbors used to tell their kids, watch out for the freaks. They're going to come get you. But, you know, after a while, they're just beloved neighbors. I have found evidence of them operating in Kansas City in 1906 and 1907. They are in the business listings at 709 Main and then the next year in the 500 block. And I eagerly went down there to see if I could find any remnant of the tattooer rooms. Guess what? Just like when we covered Annie Chambers, what I found is the parking lot for the city market. (laughs) So everything was just paved over. And that is bumming me out. But at least I'm within striking distance of where they used to live and perform tattoos. Well, tattooed ladies typically made a lot more money than their male counterparts. There's a shock value of a leg, or should I say a lower limb, and that was worth a lot. Maud, quote, sat on two baby elephants. <laughs> and it was not necessarily the pachyderms that were the main attraction for the audience, if you know what I mean. Um, so Gus had to come up with a little bit of a sideline in addition to his tattoos. He came up with a cabinet of curiosities a whole wagon full of natural specimens, a fraudulent baby mermaid, animals with two heads, things pickled in jars, arrowheads, etc. Four years to the day after they were married, Maud had a little girl named Sarah Jane after her mother, but I'm sorry to say that poor little Sarah Jane only lived for a month. The couple's only living child was born when Maud was 33, another little girl with the exotic name of Lotava. They continued to tour, and if I had infinite money, influence, and time, perhaps even a time machine, I would like an advertising banner starring Maud and Gus. Wait until you see the picture of them. Gus used to paint them, and they were life-size. That is an ungettable antique. Please provide me with leads. When Lotiva was only nine, her parents began to teach her to tattoo using the old stick and poke method for money, making her the youngest professional tattoo artist in the world. But Maud would never let her husband tattoo their daughter, even though, given both parents' appearance, that was probably the most natural thing in the world. But no, no, forbidden. As money dried up in the 20s and 30s, and work began to slow, the Wagners took work as sign painters, which, of course, is natural for an artist, although Maude felt it necessary to send in her submissions and advertise for her services under M. Wagner. So even though she's broken a lot, a lot of barriers, she still felt that a woman sign painter would be less acceptable to her customers. Um, Even now, Sign painting and mural painting is a very common side gig for tattoo artists, and there is an entire movie about it that I will link you to. Gus also set up a permanent trading post and museum in a town near the farm. I am in that area all the time, and I haven't been able to run it down yet. Um, Either in Clements or Cottonwood Falls or Elmdale in I have my eye on this one building that has always struck us as such a strange looking building with a false front and a tin ceiling. Wouldn't I be so excited if our favorite building was the trading post? Uh, Yay, if so, I'm going to continue to check it out. Just outside of that town, by the way, is Clement Bridge, where, in fact, my husband got into a head-on collision on Christmas Day in high school that has left a permanent scar on his forehead. So 
It's also a geocache, <laughs> by the way. I'll take photos next time I go. So here we have all of these weird cross connections with the area. Gus was struck by lightning while he was visiting in Oklahoma and never, ever fully recovered. He died a year later. And then after his death, Maud then told her daughter, Larva, who was now 31 years of age, all right, free to get tattoos now. I don't know what that's about. But she said, if Papa can't do mine like he did yours, I don't see the point. So Ladova, famous tattoo artist, never had a single tattoo of her own. Maud died on January 30th, 1961 at her daughter's house in Oklahoma, and both Gus and Maud are buried at Homestead Cemetery just outside of Cedar Point, Kansas. And in 2016, tattoo enthusiasts bought new headstones for them. And Maud's says, America's first lady tattooer. And Gus's says, the original Gus Wagner, globetrotting tattooer. The 20s were the first era when it, when it really became kind of middle class, fashionable and respectable. Flappers, of course, were transgressive anyway, but these ladies brought tattooing into the mainstream in a different way. It was fashionable to paint the faces of your friends and floral designs on your newly visible knees due to your short skirts. And some of them, of course, went further. Garters that were permanent tattoos were very popular among the brave and saucy. But one flapper took things just about as far as she could go. Betty Broadbent, born Sue Lillian Brown on November 1st, 1909 in Philadelphia, PA, at 14, encountered a tattooed man on a boardwalk who introduced her to his own tattoo artist, Charlie Wagner, also famous but no relation to the previous Wagners. He started out as a Wagner. And over the course of the next two years, four separate tattoo artists covered the then 16-year-old Betty with an entire bodysuit. Again, no hands, no neck, or no face tattoos, 565 separate pieces, including a giant famous eagle that covered the entire upper part of her back. She was billed as the Tattooed Venus, the youngest working tattooed lady in the world. She's widely considered to be the most photographed tattooed performer in the entire world. She also took up trick writing and rode in Harry Carey's Wild West show for years and years. But one thing I wanted to share about Betty in particular was her bold entry into the beauty pageant that was held at the 1939 New York World's Fair. Her persona was just wholesome and joyful with not a hint of the lurid tales of the past, exuberant and young and absolutely surprising. This was the very first televised beauty contest. And though she didn't win, and honestly, she didn't think she was going to win. She exposed an entire nation to the possibilities of the tattooer's art and worked to change perceptions of the subculture itself. She wanted to challenge the mainstream standards of beauty. She was the first person inducted into San Francisco's Tattoo Hall of Fame in the year 1981. I just want to mention one more imaginary tattooed lady. In 1939, a Marx Brothers movie called At the Circus was debuted and a star was born. Groucho Marx sings an homage to Lydia the Tattooed Lady. My favorite lines, she once swept an admiral clear off his feet. The ships on her hips made his heart skip a beat. And now the old boy's in command of the fleet. Lydia, oh Lydia, oh have you met Lydia, oh Lydia the Tattooed Lady. I've just been singing it all week. If that sounds familiar, it's become Groucho Marx's signature song. He sang it in 1950 at the New York Stock Exchange and brought trading to a close for 15 minutes. There you go. It's featured in Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead, Kids in the Hall in MASH, Donald Duck sang it, Kermit the Frog serenaded a lady pig muppet, not Miss Piggy, whose tattoos were hand-drawn by Jim Henson himself. That song's been stuck in my head 
for weeks. And now it's time for media. First, I'll give you some books. Bodies of Subversion by Margot Mifflin focuses on um, the history of women and tattooing, as does The Tattooed Lady, A History by Amelia Clem Osterud. Moving a little further away from women-focused tattoo history, written on the body, The Tattoo in European and American History by Jane Kaplan and The World of Tattoo, an Illustrated History by Martin Hesselt van Dinter. Then I did a lot of reading on circuses and sideshows. And so let me recommend these books for you, all of which I bought, so I own them. American Sideshow by Mark Hartzman, Secrets of the Sideshow by Joe Nickel, and my favorite, The Greatest Shows on Earth, A History of the Circus by Linda Simon. Moving on to movies, there's not so much specifically women-focused history um, movies, but I did like Tattoo Nation, a movie I found on Prime. And then to go along with the Wagners and their side gig, there is on Peacock a movie called Sign Painters. So uh, I'll give you a link to that. I want it to end this show by playing Lydia the Tattooed Lady. And I could not get it licensed in time from any source that I have. So (laughs) I'm going to give you a link to several versions of it on YouTube. Groucho Marx's Lydia the Tattooed Lady, a new version by Robin Williams, an unbelievably surreal Muppet version that Kermit sang on The Muppet Show, and following that, an even more surreal version that was sung at Jim Henson's funeral. So I'll give you a link to the performances at his funeral. And this song emerges at minute one, 38 seconds. I want to give you a link, especially to a show on PBS called Skin Stories, um, history of tattooing in the Pacific from um, Samoa to New Zealand to Oahu and California. I cannot let you miss episode 323 of The Bowery Boys at BoweryBoysHistory.com called Two Tales from New York's Incredible History with the Art of Tattooing, in which Greg will let you know the history of the tattoo gun. I can point you in the direction of several museum exhibits, one very Gus Wagner specific, one the history of New York tattoo, and another tattoo exhibit at the Field Museum in Chicago. And um, you shouldn't miss all of those pictures and all the work that went into compiling all of that history. Photos from the 1904 World's Fair and information about the pike. I went through convict tattoos in Britain. Well, that's it for my coverage of Tattooed Ladies. It is by no means a complete history. I hope that this has intrigued you enough that you can learn more on your own by following the assorted resources I will provide you. Don't forget to follow our Pinterest board for links and photos to the resources that I have mentioned. And there will be more photos on our website at thehistorychicks.com. You can join us at The Lounge over on Facebook by finding The History Chicks, clicking the button in the middle of our page called Join Group. Answer a simple question. There's no wrong answers. We just want to prove that you are a real person. And you're in where there are lively discussions every day by kindred spirits all over the world. The song in the middle is from our old friend James Harper performing as Harper Active and the song is called Jack My Swag. And the song at the end is Thrillbound by the Napoleon Blonaparts. Thanks for listening. Bye. Takes me to